Okay, everybody. I'm really excited to share this conversation that I had with Nell Shaw Cohen, who is the founder of the Landscape Music Network. We chatted about attending the New England Conservatory and New York University, using text and music, and of course COVID, among other things. But we also talked about the formation of the network and how one might go about applying to participate in the group, which has changed a lot since our conversation. For starters, ensembles and individual performers are now being included into the network and are encouraged to participate. There is an online application process, which I will link into the episode description for anyone considering being part of this ever-growing organization. My name is Luke Helker, and you're listening to Ears to the Earth. interested sort of in how you came to establishing this network, what the sort of inception was, and I guess the steps it took to get to where we are today, because uh, it seems to be ever growing. Yeah, uh, so I founded Landscape Music in 2015. Uh, it was initially conceived as an online publication that would feature essays and interviews focusing on uh, composers' creative process. And uh, it quickly, I expanded it as a composer's network because I really saw an emerging trend in contemporary composition uh, of artists who are focused on landscape, nature, and place in some way, and who really made that a focal point of their work. And because that was uh, so near and dear to me and very much how I saw myself as an artist, I really wanted to try and do a bit of community building and hopefully uh, identify this thread of work as kind of a, maybe not a genre, but a sensibility <laughs> unto itself. And uh, kind of, you know, br bring a group of, of people together around that idea and create a public facing entity where we could really acknowledge and celebrate and advocate for that work together. Uh, so I started, you know, adding a handful of people at a time and just sort of over the past five years, it's organically grown through composers reaching out to me or me finding, you know, their work uh, online or through common acquaintances. And uh, one thing that's really cool is that the group has grown to encompass a lot of composer performers who are really involved on both sides of the creative process. How, how did you first come to meet Stephen Lias? Uh, the reason why I ask is because in our conversation, it became sort of apparent that his composition seminar, Composing in the Wilderness, has become somewhat almost of a funnel for <laughs> composers who then sort of become, uh, you know, welcomed in this, in this landscape music community. And so I'm just wondering, I guess, where, where the relationship with, with Stephen and his music sort of got, got started. Um, I have to say that I think I was just aware of his work. Um, I just, you know, particularly through his 
um, how active he was within the National Park Service Artist Residency Programs. I just, I'd seen him, you know, pop, his name pop up and familiarized myself with him. And I think he was one of the first two or three people who I invited to join the network. Uh, I initially approached him for an interview, which is published on our website. And um, through him, I was introduced to composers who had been through his Composing in the Wilderness seminar. And it's true that it is a, a bit of a funnel. Um, I think there's just a really strong overlap between composers who are drawn to explore a wilderness-based composition through his workshop and folks who either before or after their experience in his seminar have made uh, music inspired by nature a focal point of their work and uh, who are just natural fits for landscape music. <laughs> who are some of the other early uh, early additions to, to the network? Uh, one of the first composers uh, was, was Rachel Panich, uh, who's a composer, violinist, fiddler, improviser. Um, and I had known her through uh, being fellow alumni of uh, the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston. And I think uh, the next earliest person would have been Christina Rusnak, who I met through Steve Lias and who has a strong connection to composing in the wilderness and actually uh, taught one of the seminars uh, in recent years as well. And she's uh, based in Portland, Oregon. That's the thing that I find so amazing about this network is how broad it is in terms of the folks in just the continental United States, let alone the several composers you have uh, internationally. Um, is there a sort of quote unquote formal application process to become part of the network or is it really as simple as just, you know, knowing you or knowing someone else in the, the network who can get in touch with you? What, what I guess are you looking for when you want to welcome composers into this into this uh, community? Mm. There is no formal application process and it's something that I've considered instituting and I just uh, I feel like it's really valuable to have a sort of organic relationship from the start or an organic conversation with people and to you know make sure that our, our starting starting point with each other is really that of getting to like authentically know their work and not have it be overly institutionalized, if that makes sense. So uh, although I've, a, a number of the members have come through recommendations of current members or people whose work I've just become aware of through researching, uh, quite a lot of the members are people who cold contacted me and just sent me an email. And I think what I've looked for from folks is really um, first of all, a desire to make landscape, nature, and or place uh, kind of a stated core focal point of their work. It's something that they articulate, articulate as being a, an important part of their artistry, because I think uh, inspiration from nature is something that is so deeply embedded in music making that what really uh, ties landscape music composers together and the really common thread is the fact that we've made the active choice as artists in society, as, as artists in the world to make that be kind of one of our, our um, 
branding uh, elements, if you will. And I think that that's a, there's a kind of sensibility behind that that's really interesting. But in a way, landscape music is sort of stylistically agnostic as much of, as possible. There are people who are creating work that is predominantly improvised or work that's electroacoustic or might have influences from jazz or from uh, rock music or all kinds of different directions, but um, I just describe themselves as composers and whatever that means to them. And certainly uh, the majority of composers in the network, I would say could be described as contemporary classical or concert music composers, but I've never wanted to limit the group to that because I think that that's just too limiting. <laughs> so yeah, those are some of the, the core factors. And I think also just a desire to engage in collaboration and community building and being proactive in putting their music out into the world and finding creative ways to make connections with audiences are all values that are really core to our group and that I think all of our members really just, uh, you know, they demonstrate it by the very nature of the work that they do. And it's very uh, clear to me when I get to look at their websites or speak with them. And we're all kind of internet friends in an interesting way where, because it is very geographically distributed, um, many members of the network I've never had the opportunity to meet in person. And it's really, uh, the online connection has facilitated a much larger community than I would have ever been able to build if I had been reliant on people in my immediate networks. And that's really, been the most fun for me. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there because you've you've echoed something that has become apparent to me just interviewing, you know, four now five members of this collective, which is that you know everybody has very different approaches based on you know their own background, experiences, education, training, and and you know their current. Um, habitat for lack of a better word it all contributes to their artistic process and it all yields you know just an infinite array of of you know interpretations for for taking something like a hiking trail and crafting a piece of music around that idea both the physical mental emotional aspects of it and so, yeah, I feel like a, a network like this, I don't know, I, w I don't want to say it couldn't exist 50 years ago, but it would be a lot harder for someone on the outside looking in to sort of have the access and realization of the, the beauty and the diversity of how all of these different composers sort of approach their, their, their craft. And I, I was hoping to maybe not dive straight into, you know, how, you know, the effects of COVID, but I, of, of course, it has become a, a major um, talking point. And I'm wondering how, because one of, one of the, one of your initiatives this, was this Earth Year 2020. And I want to know a little bit about, I guess, how COVID either helped or hindered that. Um, and then maybe at some point we'll talk a little bit about how the the very fact that we're all on Zoom all the time now continues to facilitate this collaborative ethos. Sorry, there's not much of a question there. Yeah, no, that makes sense completely what you're 
what you're asking about. Uh, and as far as Earth Year, something that's interesting is that I conceived it, you know, long before 2020 as something that would take uh, a bit more advantage of the diversity of platforms and media and formats of projects that members engage in because our, our previous sort of, um, well, I'll just back up and explain that, you know, Landscape Music as a, a collective, as an organization kind of exists in multiple ways. And one is just that uh, the website highlights the composers and their work and provides a sort of centralized place to find information about them. But we also engage in these collaborative projects uh, periodically, um, which often span geographical areas as we all can contribute to it. Back in 2018, we had a concert series that took place in five different regions across the United States. And that was a really amazing highlight for the work, uh, particularly in chamber music, in instrumental chamber music that some of our composers were doing. But looking to 2020 and the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, I wanted to find a way to celebrate uh, the, the different kinds of ways we can make music and not limit ourselves only to conventional um, concert chamber music, and also to incorporate uh, the work of composers who might be composer performers or people in international locations and, and so forth. So some of our projects were conceived as, you know, video online only projects from the beginning. And uh, particularly, um, you know, short film music video interviews and such. So we've been able to see those projects through, you know, some work has ended up being delayed just by virtue of the complexity of this year, even though it is um, remote work that's uh, still logistically feasible. It's, you know, everyone's dealing with different things in their personal lives. Um, but uh, the, the live performance component we have, you know, ended up postponing. Uh, there was a uh, a large collaborative concert that we've had planned with the U.S. Forest Service to take place in the Bay Area. And uh, that's kind of on hold. We're hoping to be able to hold something, you know, next spring, uh, circumstances allowing. And, you know, we'll just have to continue being flexible in terms of what format really takes. But yeah, I think Earth Year 2020 is going to end up being more like uh, Earth Years <laughs> 2020 to 21. And, you know, and and that's just the nature of it, yeah. I I tried to do something similar for for the same occasion, just a, a an Earth Day concert where the majority of the works would be sort of pre-existing works that uh, I would be able to sort of get some of my colleagues here to to perform, and then maybe get at least one or two newly commissioned works. Um, to, to sort of celebrate what Earth means to that particular composer. Someone who may or may not be, you know, already uh, participating in the network, but someone who I feel like, you know, if given the opportunity, could write a, uh, a piece of music that would really speak to, to, um, to, to the event itself. Uh, and then, you know, that obviously uh, has been postponed. Still trying to figure out how that'll work too. Um, So I do want to shift gears a little bit and focus a little more on sort of your own um, background and and compositional process, and then maybe we'll we'll jump back and forth as needed. Um, I wanted to ask a little bit about what it was like to study at the New England excuse me New England Conservatory. Um, Katie 
Agox, is that how you pronounce it? Agosh, but Agosh. yeah. Ooh, way off. So, <laughs> so no problem. I hope I'm right. <laughs> uh, well, she was one of the composers on our list that we, that we studied. Um, and so I'm just curious what it was like to, to study with her. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had the pleasure of, of working with uh, Dr. Agosh in orchestration classes and just having her be an important member of the NEC composition community. Um, I didn't study with her in a, a studio context. My uh, primary studio teachers were Michael Gandolfi and John Malia. Um, but yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was really happy with my experience at New England Conservatory on the whole. I think a big part of that was uh, just the sheer excellence of the performing side of the school, where I was able to get a, a ton of composition opportunities and something that I really appreciated um, as a student in that composition program was the flexibility to kind of write the music I wanted to write and as much as I wanted to write. <laughs> and so I remember my freshman year going in and just writing a piece of music and having it featured on every department recital. I think we had about seven uh, department concerts and just seeing the deadline for each of those concerts as motivation to create a new work of music and really just try a bunch of different instrumentations. You know, I did a piece with like trumpet and string quartet just to see how that works. And, you know, so I, I, I feel like all of the faculty there had a kind of openness to really just getting your hands dirty and getting into it rather than having a sort of highly uh, rigid pedagogical approach. Um, yeah, so, and then New England Conservatory is also very enriched by the environment of Boston and this being in a metropolitan area. And that was important to me, um, you know, particularly coming in at a, a non-traditional age. I started my composition study when I was 20, I think, at New England Conservatory, because I had taken some, you know, extra years to basically have uh, an independent uh, music career or, you know, take, take, making a crack at that <laughs> instead of going straight into conventional education. So uh, I really appreciated being in, a, in an educational environment that was very multi-generational and age diverse, uh, where it wasn't just, you know, 18 to 21, but people of all ages studying there. And also being in a very vibrant metropolitan area and having a lot of connection and dialogue between the school and its surroundings. And did that experience extend to NYU? Um, Missy Mazzoli and, and Julia Wolf were, were also composers that we focused on over the course of the semester. And so I guess same question, but new school. Yeah, uh, yeah. And Missy Mazzoli and Julia Wolf were also um, fantastic to work with. They taught our department uh, composition seminar for master students and uh, all, and also the the larger department seminar for um, multiple classes. And yeah, of, of course, being in New York City uh, is just, you know, a dream for many artists. And so that was a major motivation for me to go to NYU. Um, and I had the uh, pleasure of studying with Herschel Garfine as my primary studio teacher. And he uh, was an especially valuable teacher for me because he's both a librettist and a composer, as well as a you know, dramatist, stage director, dramaturg. 
And I was really interested in opera and bringing the dramatic dimension into my work. And so he was able to kind of help me down that path in a way that I hadn't gotten to explore as deeply while I was at NEC, which is a very um, all music all the time kind of environment. <laughs> so yeah, certainly being in, in New York City and, and being able to uh, you know, stay here, now I've been here about eight years, has been obviously very formative. You're originally from California, is that correct? Yeah, so I, I was born and raised in San Francisco, but I actually spent a large portion of my upbringing in Sag Harbor, which is on the east end of Long Island. So I consider San Francisco in a way my hometown, but I had really a bi-coastal upbringing. Do you think that contributed to this desire to want to write music that is uh, heavily rooted in, in place and nature? Yes, um, I think it is interesting that as someone who has kind of spent life going back and forth between places, that place becomes such a focal point for me. And I think that, um, you know, having really a sense of two homes and being sort of divided between two places uh, and having roots in two places, uh, it really created a kind of a way in which I, I had a sense of my identity being tied to place and my sense of my personal narrative of life being tied to place in a way that was particularly strongly articulated from an early age, I think. And I also had the, you know, great privilege of growing up in both a rural and an urban environment where the East End of Long Island was more of a rural setting. And then I was right in the center of San Francisco for many months of the year. So I think that gave me a good breadth of experience and an appreciation for different kinds of environments. And so, yeah, you know, living in New York City, I'm often <laughs> craving to be out, you know, in the country, out in a rural area. And um, uh, I'm, I'm always grappling with that, <laughs> the dissonance or the, or the sense of being torn between two different kinds of settings, I think. I, I feel the same way. I grew up near uh, Philadelphia. And so um, the metropolitan side was always, um, was always in arm's reach, but then we grew up with like a summer house in, on the Jersey shore. Uh, and now I'm out here in Kansas and, you know, before I moved out here for school, everyone was asking why on earth would you move all the way out to Kansas? Um, but I've had a blast here. Kansas, this, at least this particular part of Kansas has been, has been very uh, rewarding and, and enriching. Are there any places in the sort of continental United States that you have yet to, to visit or spend time that you, you would love to because you know that there's some sort of uh, piece of music waiting to be, to be uh, uh, made out there? Hmm, um, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I've, I've been fortunate to go on a few cross-country road trips where I had sort of fleeting experiences with a really wide range of really all the regions of the country. So there are all sorts of places I would love to return to and have a deeper experience of. Um, I think one spot that's always been on my wish list is uh, Glacier National Park. 
I, I got to go to Yellowstone when I was a kid, but I never really got to see Glacier. And I think that would be a really extraordinary experience. Um, there was on my wish list, which got uh, checked off the list recently was Olympic National Park uh, out in the Pacific Northwest. And I would love to just go back there and spend a lot of time because the, uh, the, the landscapes of Olympic are extraordinary and diverse. And I just think you could really never um, reach the bottom of the inspiration they might provide. Did you ever do, or excuse me, do you, did you ever participate in, in Stephen's Composing in the Wilderness seminar? I haven't, I haven't. And yeah, I would love to someday. I think it's sort of, um, you know, it's interesting. I don't necessarily consider myself a wilderness composer per se. I think that wild landscapes are deeply inspiring to me, but I'm not as adventurous as Steve is. <laughs> I'm actually, my, my approach to hiking and spending time in the outdoors is very modest. I love short uh, day trip hikes. Um, for me, I can get a lot of depth of inspiration and uh, fulfillment from a relatively, you know, what some might people, what some people might consider to be a very modest experience of just, you know, spending a few hours out on a short trail, because I think, uh, you know, for me, grandeur can found can be found on a small level. Um, so I would love to do composing in the in the wilderness someday if I can ever, you know, really uh, uh, rally the sense of adventurousness to do to take on that challenge. <laughs> Um, but I greatly admire Steve and Christina and Stephen Wood and, and Justin Rawls and all of the people in landscape music who are much more wilderness composers than myself. Well, you're touching upon something that has also become apparent to me, not just talking with, with certain members of this, this collective, but in my general uh, research, and that is that, you know, uh, landscape and, and nature is not simply just the outdoors, but it, it all sort of feeds back into this larger, certainly more abstract concept of, of just place in general, which has its own psychological behavioral bearings. This is the part of the interview that gets sort of tough to ask some of these questions only because it's so subjective and so abstract, but I guess, what does place mean to you in, in, the, in the most, you know, um, accessible sense of the word? Ooh. I think uh, for my purposes, place is in a lot of senses a cultural construct. Um, it's an experience of a setting that we as individuals and as a culture uh, create. And so that can be, you know, a set of narratives, it can be just a sense of uh, a set of sensory impressions and experiences. And it's, it's really the kind of um, the world of ideas and experiences and memories and uh, engagements that we make with a place. Um, and so I think that music inspired by place can be uh, also very narrative are very intellectual in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of the composers of the group, myself included, write music that um, sometimes has an explicit narrative component. Uh, 
the piece I wrote in 2018 for our concert series, Retrace, looks at a national historic trail, the Juan Batista de Anza National Historic Trail that runs through Arizona and California. And something that was really interesting to me in exploring that is that this so-called trail is not truly a trail in the sense of a footpath that you walk along, <laughs> um, but it's rather a, a, desi a designation of a series of places connected by a historical narrative of a Spanish colonial expedition. And so I retraced a part of the trail as a self-made artist residency writing a work. And in doing so, I basically you know, found spots on the map along this trail that I would be able to visit and kind of sort of, kind of tried to string together uh, a coherent sense of what this trail was and what its narrative was and what it meant both in the contemporary setting where it runs through you know, downtown Los Angeles and on highway underpasses and beaches uh, and then try and reconcile that with the historical narrative of what it was in the 18th century and what the founding of the trail was was really trying to educate about. And so in writing that piece, I actually wrote a poem and projected my poetry and photographs of the places I had visited during the music, uh, musical performances and composed my music to coordinate with this text because I felt that it needed to be interdisciplinary in order to express all the different facets of place that I had experienced, which were immediate in the sense of, oh, here I am at this local park outside of Los Angeles, and this is what it looks like and feels like to me in the present moment, but also what it meant for the fact that that was a campsite that a Spanish colonial expedition had made with indigenous people and what that was all about. <laughs> so place is so multifaceted, and I think that's part of why it's so fascinating, uh, an area to mine for me as an artist. So yeah, that, that's a kind of sprawling answer, but I hope that kind of gets at some of what you were asking about. Absolutely. And again, there's, there's a ton to unpack there. Um, I want to ask, so I think the, so this is a question I haven't really asked many of the other composers, although I think it, it is um, pertinent to some degree, which is the use of text to either reinforce or, well, yeah, to, to reinforce the narrative in this case that's being um, uh, exemplified through the music. And I'm wondering, I love the idea of writing your own poem to sort of fit this narrative, but I'm curious because this is not correct me if I'm wrong, this is not the only piece that has some sort of textual component to it, even though it's not uh, articulated as part of the piece, there's still a, um, there's still obviously narrative in, in other pieces of, of music. And so I, I'm curious how you go about sort of choosing text to reinforce a narrative, or if a piece doesn't have text, how you sort of craft a narrative using you know, very specific instruments with their own timbres and, and limitations. Yeah, um, so I guess I'm often drawn to text, perhaps in part because I'm also a librettist and uh, a composer of opera. 
And so for me, text and narrative and storytelling are always kind of working on some level, whether or not, as you say, they're articulated explicitly or whether they're just underlying <laughs> in the creative process. And I think um, there have been a couple pieces I've composed, Retrace um, and another work, Refuge, where I've projected text as part of the performance or I've included it in the score. And it's a very explicit way of creating programmatic work. And I think in those particular cases, those works really had a, a dual goal of being uh, music and um, storytelling and education and advocacy for specific stories about conservation and preservation of landscape and place. And I don't think that that necessarily means the music takes a subservient role or that it's somehow subsumed by those, an agenda, but rather that the educational agenda and the advocacy that I'm trying to engage in really supports the, the artistic work and inspire, inspires me, excuse me, <clears throat> the artistic work and inspires me to create a, a new kind of work than what I would do if I was just thinking about what sounds good. <laughs> um, and in terms of a lot of my musical work also doesn't have any sort of explicit narrative and it's really about creating impressions of places or uh, an emotional experience of place that's a lot more abstract and a lot more interpretive and open to interpretation. And I think that work all along that spectrum from abstract to concrete has a value and a function and um, all of it to me is open to the listener's interpretation. So even if I have a textual element, which is seemingly a sort of concrete thing, I know that listeners will bring their own experiences and perspectives to it and take from it um, what they wish. And I, I encourage that. And I, I really hope that anyone experiencing those works um, can find their own sense of meaning in it and not um, feel restricted by the explicit narrative of the work. Thank you for that. That was a great uh, explanation. And it sort of answers another question that I had on my mind, one that I've sort of asked everybody in, in one way or another so far, and, and that is sort of the role music has in terms of advocacy. Um, especially considering how most people in this network more or less, you know, want to have their music say something to, to um, advocate for the preservation of our, of our parks and, and landscapes. Although, as you articulated before, it's, it's less about the, it's, it's more about the narrative than this sort of straightforward advocacy of of conservation and so i guess i would like to toggle back to the landscape music network and ask um well i don't know if this is a question but there's a there's a ton of articles on the website written mostly by these composers. The thing that I, that I love about reading these is that it helps articulate to the listener what to expect 
to hear, but also it sort of articulates the narrative that most, if not all of these pieces are sort of striving to, to elicit in one way or another. And I know that you've mentioned that, you know, the, the, these publications is a really important part of the identity of this, this network. And so I guess the question that I'm leaning towards is what some of the, it's mm, not a good question. Well, I'll, 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 I'll like re-ask the original question, which is, I guess, what role does music have as far as advocacy, not just for, for conservation, but any sort of civil, civil liberties? Yeah, I think, um, so we're really interested in advocating for landscape, nature, and place and uh, public appreciation of the natural world through our music. But we're also interested in advocating for, in a sense, music appreciation by tying our work to those extra musical ideas and engaging a broader audience than we would be able to reach otherwise. And so that can look like, you know, having a concert which reaches an audience that might be more interested in outdoor recreation or environmental conservation and find themselves coming to a concert of new chamber music um, because it has that thematic relationship and they can find a point of entry into the music through these ideas. And I think that's really important to me personally is making my music very accessible to uh, an audience that doesn't necessarily come to it with an academic or uh, a professional background in music. I think in terms of musicians and composers as advocates in general, um, you know, we as individuals can, can take on different forms of advocacy for, as you said, civil rights or environmental rights or, or uh, climate justice and all sorts of things. And I think that's incredibly important. And I don't think it necessarily has to overlap or intersect with our artistic work in order to have uh, its own value. I think that um, it's only natural for us as artists to want to engage with the things that are most meaningful to us and our values through our work as artists. And so for me, that has to do with how I am an artist in the world. And it's, it's intrinsic to my artistic expression and what I'm drawn to expressing musically, but it's also about how I speak about my work and how I present my work. And so for me, landscape music is an important part of that because I'm essentially putting forth my work and framing it as advocacy for the natural world. And I think in even so doing, I'm stating um, the fact that I value <laughs> the natural world. And it's, it's a very sort of, um, uh, it's an imaginative act. It's, it's imagining bringing a world into being that values uh, landscape, nature, and place, and our experiences as something that is in and of itself valuable within a society that often doesn't um, place those as the most valuable things because they may not have the same kind of financial or economic value in a capitalist society as, as others. So yeah, it's an imaginative act. It's, it's an act of, of bringing those values into the world through uh, just enacting them through our work as artists, if that makes sense. 
obviously you are you are making you know the very purposeful and conscious decisions to to write music um, of this ilk. Do you ever feel sometimes that there's other music outside of of maybe nature, or whatever that you want to write about, or do you ever feel sometimes pigeonholed by, uh, or or maybe pressured to to write something that has this sort of natural um, facet to it? And if so, I mean, do you, or if not, do you are you ever bothered by by that? Hmm. I don't think so. I think um, you know, at least at this stage in my career. Uh, this sort of idea of a lot of my work being inspired by landscape is something that I myself am promoting and um, presenting as an important part of what I do as an artist. But I don't feel that there's necessarily um, anything being externally imposed upon me in that regard. Uh, but certainly a lot of my work is not explicitly connected to landscape and nature. Um, you know, a good, a good portion of it really doesn't have any kind of um, overt landscape relationship. Um, I think a lot of my work might have a little bit of landscape relationship. Um, uh, for example, I wrote a, a choral cycle uh, last year, which focuses on the work of Victorian artists, uh, looking at three different artists, um, more or less associated with the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood of England in the 19th century. And some of that work had a relationship to nature, in particular, the third movement was looking at the work of uh, visual artist William Morris and his designs as a textile designer and wallpaper designer. And it's all botanical imagery. And so it's this sort of botanical choral piece. So there is this kind of, you know, I'm just drawn to nature themes, basically, but the choral work as a whole wasn't necessarily what I would consider a work of landscape music. And so I think that there's just, it's more or less in the foreground, foreground or the background, depending on what's compelling me at any given moment. But I certainly wouldn't um, pigeonhole myself or want others to pigeonhole me in that way. You mentioned several pieces of yours already, um, like Refuge and, and Retrace. I'm curious though, if there was, for someone who is just hearing about you and your music for the first time, is there a particular piece or perhaps pieces of music that you would uh, point them in, in the direction towards to sort of provide the best representation of, of how you, you feel as a composer? Sure. Um, well, I think actually the piece I've composed that in some ways I'm most satisfied with, <laughs> which is always, um, you know, there's always a range of satisfaction on each piece. But I think the piece that I'm really, um, I feel like is a strong representation of my aesthetic is the choral cycle I just mentioned, um, Transform the World with Beauty. That was commissioned by the Skylark Vocal Ensemble. And there's a, a full recording of that on my website. Um, in terms of landscape music and my music that is really trying to respond to landscape nature in place. A piece I often come back to is Point Reyes from Chimney Rock, which was an orchestral tone poem that I wrote in 2014, I think. That was commissioned by the New York University Symphony Orchestra. And that was written 
That was written in response to a woodblock print by an artist named Tom Killian, a contemporary artist, uh, depicting uh, a, a view from a trail at Point Reyes National Seashore. And I was responding to his print as well as my personal experiences of that place. Uh, this is just north of San Francisco, California. And I really wanted to do uh, something that evoked both the, the sensory experience of being in that place and my emotional response to it, as well as the particular composition of this print and the visual components of the, the micro of the wild irises in the foreground and the macro of the um, coastal scenery and the sort of vista. So I think that those two pieces are a good, good kind of like a work that's very focused on vocal music and text and ideas and a work that's wholly instrumental and a bit more impressionistic. I realize the time is sort of winding down at least for now. Um, I guess the last question I'll ask is sort of looking, anticipating you know, what's on the other end of, of this. Um, has this, has, I mean, and I think COVID in general has you know, really forced us to you know, confront our, our preconceptions of what place is and how it's obviously not just a trail or a, or a state park, but obviously, you know, one's living room and kitchen. Um, has, has the time off given you the opportunity to sort of like reevaluate the scope and the direction of what the, the network can or should be? Uh, and I guess the follow-up question would be then, you know, what is the sort of the grand scheme moving forward? Because it still feels like I, it's it's in a sort of in infancy stage where it can be so much more, and I'm curious to know what your your you know ten year plan for for the network is. Um, well, that's a wonderful question. I'll let you know when I have the answer. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I don't I don't have a ten year plan. I have a lot of um, hopes and a lot of nascent ideas that I've discussed with different people in the group. I think, um, I think taking it kind of one step at a time makes sense for me right now, in part because uh, the future is uncertain and we kind of aren't you know, uh, in a position to be able to make concrete plans for the next couple of years. Um, hopefully things will become more uh, feasible and concrete as these, these months wear on. Um, but I think, you know, we've discussed finding ways to do more collaborative concert series or more performances or commissioning projects. And I think that's all great. I think there's also just uh, an inherent uh, value or um, purpose to just having this website, having these artists featured and, you know, finding ways to uh, bring an audience to that and introduce people to these composers. And I think uh, one thing that I hadn't mentioned before, with, but which I think is an important part of the idea behind landscape music is that we're featuring artists at different stages of their careers. And there are some folks who are, um, you know, doctoral students, and there are people who you could consider mid-career established composers. And I think that, um, I don't place a greater value on people who have certain credentials, <laughs> as long as people are, you know, creating work of integrity and work with, you know, 
um, interesting artistic impulses behind it and doing it at a high level, whatever that might mean within the scope of their careers. I think that's all really worth celebrating. And so I think that, you know, I'd love to say that I want to grow landscape music into a massive, all-encompassing, powerful institution, but I'm also just happy for it to be kind of what it is and to continue just steadily growing from there. And it is, you know, um, a wholly volunteer run effort and something that we really do as kind of a labor of love when we can find time for it. And I think um, that is really nice to me <laughs> in a way, uh, rather than um, unlimited growth being the end goal. But I certainly hope that we can continue to organize increasingly ambitious performance projects, um, you know, as circumstances allow and continue growing the list of composers that are featured and continuing to diversify the list of composers, which is a, a big goal of mine looking ahead. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's, that's a, those are all big parts of it. But I, I appreciate that you see that potential in the organization and that you, you can envision it being something bigger and greater. And I certainly hope that it will live up to that, <laughs> that expectation. Well, no, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, your answers have been have been fantastic. Uh, I look forward to, to hearing this again and, and sharing the interview, sharing your music, everyone's music, and you know the, the network as a whole. And, and yeah, thank you for everything. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Uh, I really appreciate your interest in landscape music and my music, and I look forward to seeing um, the fruits of the fruits of this project that you're undertaking. <laughs>